You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's grab our Bibles and turn not to the Gospel of Mark. We are going to take a break, just a one-week break from the Gospel of Mark. So turn to Ephesians, the letter from Paul to the Ephesian churches. You can find that in the Bibles in the seats in front of you on page 928. I think that's right. If it's not exactly right, I looked at this in first service and I'm getting older. My memory is fading. So I think it's around there. If you get to 928, you'll be right in the general vicinity and you'll be able to find Ephesians 4. Now, why are we going to take a break from the Gospel of Mark? I hope the Gospel of Mark study has been valuable to you so far. It's been an opportunity to revisit stories about Jesus and his ministry, stories that maybe some of you are familiar with. We've seen TV series and movies about these stories, but I hope that the Gospel of Mark study has moved us beyond just a factual understanding of Jesus to see how Jesus fits within the broader story of redemptive history, to see that he is the epicenter and that as we go back to Isaiah, as we go back to the prophets, as we even go back to the Garden of Eden, we see that all of those events, all of those details were intended to point us to Jesus Christ and now for us to live in light of his completed work. So I hope that's been your blessing through our study of the Gospel of Mark. But as I've been reflecting on our church since COVID, I've been amazed at our growth. And we shared last week at our family chat that we have grown at a 70% clip since before COVID. That is incredible and unheard of. But what it means is that we have several hundred people who were not part of us before COVID. Several hundred people who are coming into a history, and you're bringing with you church experience, some of that good, some of that maybe not so good. And so I want to take this opportunity to be able to explain to all of us as a church what we do. Who are we as a Sin Church? And we give you opportunities through the lunch that we're hosting here this afternoon, which if you didn't sign up, it's okay. You can come, and right now probably the team is scrambling. But we'd love for you to participate in that through these doors into our training center. We would love to be able to introduce our family to you and to be able to let you know how we got here in this beautiful church. But we also offer a foundations class. It is an opportunity for you to get to know what is expected of you as members and what you can expect from us as a church family. But today I want to drill down on what we do as a church. And there's a lot of different opinions on what a church should do. There are some churches who say that the the focus of the church should be to reach out to the unchurched and to minister to the seekers in our community. There are others who say what we do as a church should be to fill our heads with knowledge so that before we pass on from this life, we can be experts on what God's word says. There are other churches that say we should be about missions and evangelism. And so all of those things in and of themselves are good, but I think it's valuable for us to not borrow from what other churches do, not even say, well, this is what we've done for 11 years, and so we'll continue doing this, but instead go to the blueprint of scripture to see how did Christ intend his church to function and so that's what we're going to do this morning and I pray for many of you it will be an encouragement 
and you will just be reminded to keep on keeping on. For some of you, you might be confronted with a design that is different than your experience with church. It might even be different than your expectations and what you think a Christian or a church should look like. And as always, I encourage you, as I encourage myself, let's recalibrate to make sure our mindset and our living is according to God's design. So Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11, let me read our passage and then we'll dive in together. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature and the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the Waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up. In love. This is our passage, and while we have different approaches to church and different emphases, this is God's design. And no matter what areas we would like to emphasize, no matter what areas we might be passionate about, we know from this passage, and this is my premise, that a disciple making church will mature. Discipleship is about maturing. And that is what we do here at Ascend. In order to accomplish this, let's evaluate, number one, are you following your guides? Are you following your guides? God makes it very clear that he has provided guides for his church. These are offices. These are categories. These are areas within the church that God has gifted and designed to guide. We see this in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 12. We see this in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. We see this in 1 Corinthians 11.1, this concept of God providing guides for his followers to be able to help bring them along in their walk with Christ. Now verse 11, if you're like me, I'm drawn to a topic that we don't see a whole lot, at least in our church, and that's the topic of apostles. And we'll get there in just a moment to explain what that is. But first of all, I want you to see the first phrase that Paul gives us in verse 11. It says, and he gave. Now, the original language emphasizes he. In fact, you could more literally say it is he himself who gave. And so in so doing, what Paul is doing is drawing attention not to the gifts, but to the giver. It is he himself. Who is the he? Well, look at the verses before, and you can see that the he is none other than Jesus Christ. Now, again, remember who Jesus Christ is. He is the one who volunteered to give himself up for the church. He is the one who the Father appointed to sacrifice his life, to humble himself, to be the groom for the bride who is the local church and the universal church. 
And so this great groom has given his bride exactly what she needs. It says he is gifted. He has given. The word, me, give, the word gift means to assign a person or thing to a task with a special benefit to others. That means each one of these offices, each one of these categories have been given by Christ for the benefit of y'all. If we were in Texas, that would make sense. For each one of us. Each one of us in our process of growth to becoming more like Christ, each one of us in our Christianity have been given a gift by Jesus Christ specifically to benefit others. And the first one is that term right there in the text, apostles. The term apostle literally means officially sent one. It is an official delegate from an authority. Now, the Bible tells us about a group of men who Paul refers to as the super apostles. These were the 11 disciples, 12 minus Judas. People like James, like John, like Peter. Paul refers to them as super apostles in Galatians. But then there were also varsity apostles who had similar authority, had the same authority as the, as the super apostles. These would be apostles like the apostle Paul. They had specific authority and were tasked with the responsibility to go into unchurched areas and under their authority establish churches. So Paul would have come to Olathe where no gospel-centered churches existed and based solely on his instruction, given the authority to build a church. There were also JV apostles. These are the apostles that were called apostles like Barnabas in the book of Acts. These apostles were instructed with a specific task, and that was to go into unchurched areas and build up Christ-centered, gospel-centered churches. There was no blueprint for this. There was no Torah. There was no prophet. There was no Psalms that they could draw from to say, this is what the church should look like. So it was necessary for apostles, based on their apostolic authority, to be able to set the foundation for the church. It's interesting. I sat next to an apostle in Israel. He had a ring that said he was an apostle. He was a dear brother in Christ from a denomination that is very different than ours. And as we talked about this apostleship, I was very intrigued to hear how he arrived at that ring and at that title. I I loved this dear brother. I disagreed with him because as I listened to how he arrived at receiving the ring and that title, it was not the way that the New Testament explains an apostle is assigned. And so I can stand on the authority of Scripture and how it all comes together to be able to say, this office is no longer present in the church today. We do not need an individual to be able to, on their own authority, on their apostolic authority, provide the blueprint for the church because we have the authority we need in the Bible to tell us how the church should function. So in that time, God equipped the church with apostles, but second of all, it says in verse 11, the prophets. 
Now, the prophets are an interesting group. The prophets that we're very familiar with are often the Old Testament prophets. And so when we think about a prophet, we often think that these are individuals who foretold the future because in the Old Testament, that's most often what they did. But can I give you a definition of prophet that I think will help us better understand biblically what a prophet is? A prophet is someone who boldly proclaims divine revelation. A prophet is someone who boldly defi- boldly, what did I say? <laughs> boldly proclaims, checking to see if you're listening, divine revelation. Now I'm going to repeat it again to see if I can do it and to see if you can write it down. A prophet is someone who boldly proclaims divine revelation. Now, the purpose of a teacher repeating something three times is we want to make sure we get it, right? Now, in the Old Testament, someone was boldly proclaiming divine revelation that was divinely revealed directly to them from God. Why? Because Scripture was being written during that time. It was not complete. And in the New Testament, you, you see this transition of some prophets who are boldly proclaiming divine revelation that had not been previously revealed, that was given to them directly from God. But then you begin to see prophets who are boldly declaring divine revelation from the scriptures. And so as we look at the church today, we can say with the authority of scripture and how it unfolds that that last aspect of prophet in the New Testament is what we have today. We do not have individuals who are boldly proclaiming divine revelation that previously has not been revealed. Most of the time, if not all of the time, we do not have individuals whom God is speaking directly to. If someone claims that that is the case, then we do exactly what they did in the Old Testament and we measure it against what God has actually said in the pages of Scripture to determine whether or not what they're saying is accurate. And so the gift to the transitional New Testament church is the same gift that God has given to people today and to the church, and that is prophets will boldly declare the divine revelation of God's word. That's important, isn't it? You don't want to have somebody who's standing up in front of you who is simply saying, God told me this, but you don't know whether or not that is true. We have exactly what we need to be able to measure divine revelation and the proclamation of it. It's the completed word of God. Write down Ephesians 2 verse 20. That's why Paul was saying that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Those who came with divine authority and the apostles. Those who came with direct revelation from God himself. And now we have that foundation laid. It is found in the 66 books of the Bible. And so we realize the gift that New Testament and prophets today are, which brings us to the third one. Jesus says that he also gave evangelists. Evangelists are in the New Testament sense the same as they are in the contemporary sense. These are people who go out into areas and plant churches. They start churches where a church did not exist for the purpose of building up a body of disciple-making believers under the structure of the design of the New Testament. This is a good reminder for us to think about when we think about missions. 
whether missions is overseas, whether missions is in even our communities, in areas where churches do not exist. The purpose of missions is not just sharing the gospel, it's raising up gospel-centered, disciple-making churches. That's what missions is. And so that gift and that office still exists today. But the last one is what we are most familiar with, and I say one, even though there's two titles here, because in the original language, most likely this is Paul referring to one office. These are the shepherd teachers, the elder teachers. And let me just give you a phrase that might help us better understand this. Every elder in the church is also a teacher in this sense, but not every teacher is also an elder. In other words, there will be people within the local church who are gifted as teachers. They are teaching right now in kids' ministry. They teach in student ministry. They teach in small groups. They teach in women's ministry. They teach in men's ministry. They teach, and they do an incredible job. But that's not the office that Paul is talking about here. The office that Paul is talking about here are those who are also given oversight within the church for doctrine, for discipline, for direction. And that is a gift. I can tell you, beloved, our church is gifted with seven men who are teachers, who are shepherds, who care deeply about each one of you. We get together and we pray for each one of you, each one of the members. We go through the list. We pray for you. We're, we're, we're trying to design some sort of strategy where we can actually engage with each one of our members on a, at least one-time basis intentionally during the year. We care deeply for each one of you. We care deeply for doctrine. Right now we're reading a book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, making sure that as we approach God's word that we're, we're recognizing the different tiers of doctrines, tiers in terms of levels of doctrine. And just because they might be on an outer level doesn't mean that we don't wrestle with scripture and land on a position that we would say as we study God's word, this is our position. You know, I, I struggle with elders who will take some passages and doctrines in scripture and say, well, you just figure it out yourself. That's not shepherding. Every doctrine, every passage of scripture must be wrestled with. And while we may not understand it perfectly, we will land on a place. And isn't it a blessing to have a church that has a group of men that are like that? The value of guides was illustrated back in our old office space. Our old office space at Bradley Drive, some of you remember that. We, we took two office units and we tried to design kind of a functional and, and, and a style that would reflect our style as a church and I remember one day in particular, you guys, many of you know uh, one of our elders, Doug Besh. He is incredible when it comes to construction. And I remember him bringing in all of these galvanized pipes and these tools and these shelves and laying them all out on the floor with another elder who is exceptionally not skilled in construction. He will remain nameless, but he will raise his hand. And I remember looking at this and he's saying, okay, you're going to help me with this. I'm like... Wait, what? And he started modeling. He started drilling into the floor. He started putting the pieces together. And I started following my guide. And you can ask him after the service, but he tells me to this day that I contributed. But the only way that that is possible is by me following the guide. And beloved, look at what the guides are actually doing for each one of you. Look at verse 12. 
It says these offices, these men, these categories are given to equip. The word equip means to make someone adequate or sufficient for something to furnish completely. Beloved, when we read this text and when we unpack it, you are going to see what the goal is that God has for each one of you. We see what the goal is that God has for Ascend Church. And I got to tell you, it's like me looking at all of those pipes and those tools and those shelves laying on the floor. It is impossible unless we have guides. And we live in a day and age where we, we think and we are encouraged to think this way, that the Christian life is intended to be lived out privately. It's intended to be lived out on an island or isolated, and we think that we have everything that we need to be able to function as Christians and to be able to achieve the goals and the rest of these verses on our own, but Jesus says no. The authority of God's word says no. The Christian life is not intended to be lived out on an island or exclusively as an autonomous individual Christian. The Bible says no. I didn't always understand that. There's times when I do want to live it out on my own. But beloved, the beginning of this passage reminds us Jesus has gifted his bride with everything that we need, beginning with the guides of the church. My question to you is, are you following them? Now, we have accountability. We have character that we're supposed to give evidence of patterns of, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5. We have abilities that we need to be able to demonstrate to the church. We need to be able to be able to teach. But, beloved, listen, if the character is there, if the abilities are affirmed, then you need to follow us. We are not gifted to the church to... Move your, your preferences forward. But so oftentimes, the greatest critiques of the leaders of the church are your preferences. So, beloved, to the degree that we are demonstrating character, to the degree that we are upholding the truth of God's word, to the degree that we are giving evidence that our abilities are aligned with what elders should be gifted with, my ask of you is the same ask and instruction as the Apostle Paul follow your guides. Number two, commit your resources. Commit your resources. Verse 12 goes on to say that the officers of the church are given to equip the saints. Saints were individuals who were called out to a purpose. The purpose is going to be unpacked here, not only in verse 12, but in the rest of this passage. The purpose is what we are equipping the saints to do. The Greek word gar in verse 12 advances this statement to equip the saints for. It is to this end, to this goal, for this purpose. It is for the work. What is the word work? Well, we typically think about hard activity. But more specifically, work is that which a person normally does. In other words, remember our study of the Gospel of Mark. Fishermen do what? Fish. Tax collectors collect what? Taxes. This concept is that the elders and the leaders of the church are intended to equip Christians to do what we are expected to do. And what are we expected to do? Look at the next phrase. The ministry. You see it? 
This isn't me making it up. I want you to see it in the text. What is ministry? It's all the services performed in a Christian community that contribute to discipleship. Isn't that awesome? Ministry is all of the activities that are combined to contribute to the process of discipleship. See, oftentimes what we think about as ministry is women's ministry, right? Kids' ministry, Connected ministry, missions ministry, outreach ministry. We think of ministers. That's somebody who is employed by the church. But ministry is everything that contributes to the process of discipleship. That's your responsibility and mine as well as a follower of Christ. The leaders of the church are intended to and gifted to equip every Christian to contribute to the process of discipleship. What is the process? Well, it's explained here in verse 12. It's the building up of the body of Christ. I love this because building up reminds me of my construction days. I I couldn't stand my construction days, (laughs) but I learned a lot. And what I learned is it takes a lot of trades to construct a house, doesn't it? That group that comes in with the backhoes and with the earth movers at the very beginning, if you are waiting on them to be able to pour the concrete, lay the framing, wire the house, plumb the house, do the trim carpentry, guess what? That house is not going to stand. But you need those earth movers. You need the foundation layers. You need the framers, you need the electricians, you need the plumbers. And there are days on the construction site when it looks like an anthill, doesn't it? And there are trades all over the place. If you ever drove by this building as it was being constructed, it was that. There were people who were experts in their field. There were people who were in one particular area at the top of their game. And we needed all of them to be functioning to build this beautiful building. And beloved, the same thing applies to you. God has gifted you and skilled you in very specific ways to contribute to building up this body. Some of you, your skills are actually to maintain and build this church literally. Others of you, it's to plant and water seeds of the gospel in the lives of our precious children. Others of you, it's to be a smiling face as people walk in in the morning, to hold umbrellas for people, to be baristas in the cafe. It's not just on Sundays. It's to lead small groups. It's to be available as the wheels of people's lives are falling apart, to be equipped for biblical counseling, to come alongside of them, to be able to step up when meal trains are initiated. The body of Christ needs you. This is what God has designed for his church. So the question I want to ask you is two steps for spiritual assessment. Number one, give yourself personal assessment. Are you building? Can you look at your life and give evidence where you are swinging hammers, where you are laying foundations, where you are wiring, spiritually speaking? to build up the body of Christ. But then second of all, is there fruit? So don't just look to see if there's activity. Look to see, are you actually building? 
That's the beauty of the body of Christ, is we might start somewhere. Listen, if I walked up here and tried to lead worship, that wouldn't be great. You would hear a screeching voice. You would turn off the microphone back there in the sound booth. And I would learn very quickly, this is not my role for building up the body of Christ. That's part of the process. And there's not a test that you can take that will tell you, well, this is how God has wired you. Those help, but it's not definitive. So just jump in, serve, swing the hammers, but after a while, if your thumb is throbbing, you might try something else. So beloved, my question to you is, are you committing your resources, time, skills, gifts, to build up the body of Christ? That is God's design. Number three, we must align our goals. Align our goals. What is the objective of the church? Well, Paul unpacks it here in verse 13. So here we go. We've got the officers of the church. We've got the shepherd teachers. We've got the church planters. They are the gift to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry with the objective of building up the body of Christ until when, Paul? Verse 13 tells us. You can stop when your church reaches 1,000. Is that what it says? You can stop when you achieve five multi-campuses. You can achieve when you plant five churches and you, you see the exercise that I'm taking us on. All of those are worthy goals. All of those can be signs of a maturing church. But, but Paul says here that those are secondary. The objective and the goal in verse 13 is attaining. Do you see it in the text? We do the work of ministry. We engage in the process of constructing disciples until we attain. Attain what? Well, first it says we attain to unity. The word unity I would describe as a concept of us all speaking and thinking the same thing. Isn't that an awesome analogy? Husbands and wives sometimes achieve this, for better or for worse. Where all of a sudden something happens or a question pops up and they say the same exact thing in the response, they didn't cover it beforehand. This is the idea of the church, is that when we are thinking and speaking the same thing, then we can stop the process of building. And what are we saying the same thing and thinking the same thing about? Is it a DNA of a, of a church? Not necessarily. Look at what it says in the text. Until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of Christ. And both of those words go together. Knowledge and faith go hand in hand. Knowledge is the information contained in the word. It is the facts that we gain when we study God's word, but it doesn't stop there. It also moves into the realm of faith. Remember, we talked about faith last week. Faith is the action-producing confidence that God is who he says he is and will be what we need him to be in every and all circumstance. That's what faith is. But in order to actually have that kind of action-producing confidence, we need to know God. Amen? How do we do that? By studying what he writes about himself. By studying the blueprint. Beloved, when we open this book, what we see is information that first points us to himself. So oftentimes we read this book and immediately we want to say, well, where am I in the text? How does this apply to me? Which that does not work very well with the genealogies, does it? 
That's why so oftentimes we get bored with genealogies. But genealogies, as well as all of Scripture, are intended to first and foremost point us to the character of God. And when you read all of those genealogies in the Old Testament, it's fascinating to see how God took everyday individuals like you and me and preserved them and gave them children and continued the human race, oftentimes in dire circumstances. Beloved, this book is first and foremost intended to not teach us about ourselves, but to teach us about our God. And when we learn about him, then it moves us to faith. It moves us to confidence. It moves us to action. And beloved, when we get to a place where we are fully unified and thinking and speaking the same thing in perfect theology, perfect understanding, perfect application, then we can stop building. Are we there yet? And all God's people said, no way, Jose. So until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, but then there's more to mature manhood. What is the measure? So we we might start to feel good about ourselves. We, We might start to become theologians, as it were. We might be able to take difficult passages and be able to explain them, but the measure is not one another. The measure is not other theologians. The measure is given Here in verse 13, the measure is mature manhood, which is measured by the stature of the fullness of Christ. I love that. Beloved, my question to you is illustrated in this way. Imagine three resources. Imagine an empty cup, a faucet that produces water, and a potted plant. Imagine two goals with those resources. Goal number one is how much water can we hold in this cup without spilling? That'd be a fun goal, wouldn't it? Kids love goals like that. Goal number two is how healthy can we make this plant? Beloved, I think many of us approach the Christian life like goal number one. How much information can I fill up? How much can I get out of the church? But the goal that Paul is unpacking here is how healthy can the church be? How much like Christ can the church reflect? And so at the end of the day, this message is for you, but it's also for you to be able to use in the lives of others. It's intended to be able to move in your life to produce change that will then impact others. This is the plan that God has given for his church. Goals are important, but we have to remember the goals of the church and of the Christian life are for everyone, not just for us. But God promises that if we are cultivating unity, if we are progressing in knowledge and we're becoming more like Christ, guess what? The church will be healthy. Do you see how there's individual and corporate application? So the question in this is, are you aligning your goals with what God's word says? Or do you have your own agenda? Number four, we must fulfill your roles. 
We must fulfill our roles. There's a negative value to our roles. The negative value is given in verse 14. So we're building up the body of Christ. The elders are pouring in. The leaders are equipping the saints. We're all doing the work of the ministry. We're doing this until we arrive, which will not be this side of eternity. So that, verse 14, henna, purpose. This is why we're doing all of this. This is what we're doing as a church. It's so that, verse 14, we can mature. That's what it says. But the negative side of things is that it tells us in verse 14 that as Christians, we start out as children, don't we? Children are so fun. I I oftentimes, on, on off days when I'm not preaching, like to serve in kids' ministry during one of the services. Man, you see those kids, and they are just wide-eyed, and man, you can have so much fun with them, but they're also kids. Kids that can easily get distracted by shiny objects like a flickering flame of a campfire. Kids that when they don't get their own way, they just don't know how to cope, and they throw themselves on the ground in a tantrum. Which, by the way, parents, let me just say, on the authority of Scripture, do not let your kids do that. Don't look at the behavior of your kids that is expressing depravity of their hearts and just chalk it up to, it's just their age. No, it's just their sinful heart. And as parents, we are tasked with the responsibility to shepherd hearts. And so when a sinful heart is demonstrated, even if that means you've got to leave the store and go to the car and get them safe and pour into them with shepherding, with instruction, and that throws your day off and your routine off, you do that. That's what we do as parents. Because children need to be punished. Children need to be redirected. Children need to be shepherded so that they can mature. And that's the analogy that Paul's giving here. Children, just like us as adults, are impacted often, verse 14, by every wave, aren't we? Well, why does Paul use this analogy of waves? Because waves wear you down. We were just in Florida this last week. And it's fascinating to see the impact of waves on stones. It just beats on them over and over again until they get really, really smooth. But listen, false teaching and the world system is like waves, isn't it? Just consider the LGBTQ plus agenda. It is waves. It comes out in the commercials. I'm watching commercials at night, and it's all over. It's on sitcoms, and I'm watching some old sitcoms from back when I was growing up, and guess what? It was back then, and the waves keep hitting keep hitting. They keep hitting. Legislation has passed waves. Keep hitting, keep hitting. And the strategy is that hopefully those who understand God's design and are willing to stand up and hold it will just get beaten down. Don't get beaten down. Beloved, God's design has never and will never change. There's no biology, there's no science that can prove that the decisions that people make for same-sex attraction for wanting to change their gender. That is a decision that people make, beloved. That is not the design of the creator. And the waves continue to pound. The church is intended to equip us and to build us up so that those waves will not push us over. It goes on to say, it's not just the waves 
It's also every wind of doctrine. And man, there are lots of winds of doctrine, aren't there? Now, I have to tell you, doctrine is not easy. Doctrine is something that is a struggle. We have to wrestle with it. We as elders are reading through a book called Finding the Right Hills to Die on because we recognize that there are some doctrines that are difficult. There are some doctrines that are not very clear, but beloved, listen, we as elders will commit to you that every doctrine that we can find in Scripture, we will at least, each of us individual and then with consensus, will at least arrive on a position. I mean, we're fallible. We, we make mistakes. We do everything that we can with, with good interpretive tools to understand and interpret the Bible, but we, we do allow for the fact that we make mistakes, but we will wrestle with it. We will study it, and as different winds of doctrine come out, we will study God's word with good Bible interpretation, and we will continue to try to build up the body of Christ so that the wind does not blow us over. He also talks about human cunning and craftiness in deceitful schemes. The word cunning is an interesting one. It, it was used in classical Greek to describe weighted dice. Dice that look like when you roll them, it would just be random, but would always fall the way that the dealer intended. And beloved, what Paul does by using this word is remind us that not everything is exactly as it seems, is it? Not every book on a Christian bookstore bookshelf conveys the truth of God's word. Not every preacher who is called a pastor is communicating the truth of God's word. And so we are given the gift of scripture. We are given the gift of plurality. Do you guys understand the value of a plurality of elders? If we were a church that was built on one elder and one person's authority, there are so many problems with that. God has gifted the local church with all of these resources to help us not be deceived, not fall into cunning, not fall into craftiness. The word craftiness means people posing as experts. Man, do you see how relevant this is for today? And all of these individuals, all the weighted dice, all the, the people posing as experts are all intended to influence our thinking to align with their agenda not at the local church level, not here, not according to God's design. This is so prevalent, beloved, but the gift that God has given us as a local church is really summarized in verse 15. Look at what it says. Rather, instead of children being influenced by all of this, instead of this, no, we are maturing. Verse 15, we speak the truth. You know what's interesting? We live in a day and age. It's often referred to as postmodern, although I've heard a term that I think is more accurate, post-Christian. We live in such a secular world where truth is relegated to relativism, isn't it? Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. You be you. I be me. And let's just agree to get along. And it's not unique to us today, though. Remember what, the, what Pilate said to Jesus in his interrogation. He asked the question, what is truth? As though there is not one standard. Had Pilate been listening to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane during the high priestly prayer, he would have received his answer. Jesus says in John 17, 17, sanctify them, set them apart, equip them, the disciples, the, the Christians, the followers of Christ, set them apart with your truth. What is your truth? Your word. 
Beloved, do you realize the value of this book? There is no other book that can make the claims that this book does, that it is the very words of the God of the universe that give us everything that we need for life and godliness. And man, if we would study it, there are treasures. And listen, you don't have to have a seminary degree. I am just like you. I've spent more money and I've spent more time in the classroom to get an education, but I'm just like you. I'm nothing special. I've learned how to study God's word because of people pouring into me. I've realized that it's not their job to continue to teach. I'm also supposed to be a teacher. And beloved, if you will take that mindset and you will enter into membership and engagement here at Ascend, you will be able to do what I can do. Study, understand, live, and teach God's word, Ezra 7.10. It takes time, it takes effort, but you know one of the objectives that I have here at Ascend every time I preach is not to explain a text, not to have you apply the text, but also to model how to study it. And so you pick up resources over your lifetime. You have your iron sharpened, but I'm modeling to you how to study God's word. You can do this. It's why we provide women's ministry, men's ministry, small groups. We are trying to model how to study God's word, but it takes your effort. It takes you being able to engage with the truth so that you can speak the truth. The truth is measured by God's word. But then it also says, I love this, verse 15, in love. Oftentimes people who are truth people are not loving people. May that not be here at Ascent. But also, beloved, let us define love biblically. We were talking as a family the other day, and one of my daughters said, you know, when I hear people say, how could a loving God, you know, allow suffering? How could a loving God allow cancer? How could a loving God allow inconsistencies? She made a very good point. The the right question to ask is, how can a loving father condemn his son to crucifixion? And see, when we start to go down that road, then we realize, wait a minute, my Peter Cetera love definitions from the 1980s aren't necessarily the definition of the Bible. The Valentine's definition that Hallmark promotes, the, 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 the movies the, and the way they tell us what love is, that is not necessarily and most often not the definition of love from Scripture. So when we recalibrate ourselves to the sacrificial, others first love of Scripture, now we can actually speak the truth in love as Christ intended. Beloved, can you imagine the results if each one of us as individuals fulfilled our roles for what we're called to do here in the church? Well, it would lead to number five, our opportunity to enjoy the benefits. Enjoy the benefits of the church. I hate reading instructions, especially Ikea instructions. Especially technology instructions. I I, I come from an IT background, so when somebody's trying to tell me how to use a computer, I'm like, I don't need to read this, but oftentimes I can't even find the power on switch. Beloved, if we are wanting to enjoy a product the way it was designed, then we follow the instructions. So when we follow the instructions, look at the benefit Verse 15 says, we are growing up in every way. I love this. We are growing up in every way, in every context, wherever you are. Married couple, parents, 
single, students, looking for a job, in a job you despise, whatever your life context, in every way of your life, you will grow up into what? Into Christ. And that's the goal of the Christian life, isn't it? I mean, all of these other goals that the world says are not necessarily bad in and of themselves, so many of them, but the ultimate goal, the ultimate objective is to be like Christ. God promises that if we follow his design as individuals in the context of the local church, we will grow in every way. What a promise. Verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let me explain to you what this means. That means the product works. That means we don't get derailed. That means we function as God intended. The best way I can illustrate this, and you know I'm growing in my illustrations, is through baseball. That's, that's all I know, really. Baseball and theology, I'm two-trick pony. But the way I can illustrate this is watch the Royals Thankfully, the last couple days, they've become more fun to watch. But I love being able to watch almost every game because you get to see these young guys grow up. You get to see them mature. Watch the guy when he has his first major league hit, how he responds. He's got a big smile on his face. They show his family up in the stands. They, they stop the game and they throw the ball off so that he can hold it for his memories. But guess what? Whit Merrifield doesn't do that. He gets a hit, and what does he do? He puts on that glove because he knows it's the next objective. Steal second. Get to third. Score a run for my team any way possible. Doesn't have a huge smile on his face. They don't stop the game and throw the ball away. See, when you're a veteran, the things that affect a rookie don't affect you. Friends, I'm getting older. I've now got white on my face. Got no hair. I used to have beautiful hair. Just trust me. <laughs> I'm getting flabby. I can't play. I can't, I can't do the athletic things that I could do in my 20s. I was talking to my family the other day. I have a classmate that died from cancer. I graduated in 93. That's not supposed to happen. Beloved, life is hard. All of us learned that over the last year and a half. There are unfair circumstances that happen. There are things that are out of our control. But if you want to get to a place where no matter what happens in your life, you will stand firm, then follow the design that God has for Christians in his local church. 